This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. As we once again turn to our series on Hebrews 11, we find injected at this point a short synopsis of the last few believers we have studied. We read in Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. When this passage states at the outset, these all died in faith, it refers to Abraham, Sarah, and then also to Isaac and Jacob, who are mentioned in verse 9 of this chapter. And that the writer to the Hebrews has these particular believers in mind is because these receive the specific promises of God's covenant. God promised them the land of Canaan as a possession, and that their seed would be without number. But if we read the verses before us closely, we also find that they speak in the present The writer does this in order to draw believers today into what is said about these believers in the past. We also today confess that we are pilgrims and strangers in the earth. This confession is true of us because we too seek a country that is a heavenly. So, we are drawn into the hopes and desires of these saints that have gone on before. We will find that really, the life of these saints, though different in time and circumstances, is not all that much different than ours today. In a very real way, we could say of God's people today, we all die in faith, not having received the promises of God. We have received the promise of Christ's second coming and our final redemption. We have received the promise of the final resurrection. We hope for these. We will not die, or we will die not having received them, unless, of course, Christ returns in our lifetime. This word of God, therefore, is timely and significant for us, too. The other truth we need to bear in mind in this passage is the typical character of the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is for us a type of heaven. This earthly country is a picture of the heavenly country. But it is not only a type for us today, it was also a type to the believers in the Old Testament. The promises that surrounded the land of Canaan served to point Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives to the coming Messiah and heaven itself, too. That comes out clearly in the Word of God we study today. It is evident that the main idea of this passage is a country. But this is not just any country. It is a country set apart from any other. It is a country 
that one truly desires, a country that a person diligently seeks for. In fact, so special is this country that one reaches out for or stretches out his hand, so to speak, in order to grasp it. So precious is it. What makes this country so special? Well, it is one's homeland. The term describes this country well. It is our fatherland, the true place of our home. Such is implied in the simple word country in the verses we consider. It refers to the country or place of a person's lineage. In other words, it is that country where people can lay claim to a common origin. People are born out of the same common line of a family in that country. Some people can call themselves Dutchmen, or Italian, or Spanish, or Asian, or Indian, or African. These are the countries of their origin, their homeland. Perhaps we are not able to relate to that as much in our own land since we have become a melting pot of all nations. Most of us were planted here a long time ago by our own ancestors who moved here. For us, America has become our homeland, no matter what ethnic background is true of us. This is the idea behind verse 14. They that declare such things declare plainly that they seek a country, or better, They that say such things disclose to everyone around them that they seek their homeland. This, of course, must be applied to Abraham and his wife Sarah, as well as Isaac and Jacob. They declared that they too sought their homeland. The country they sought after was the land of Canaan. The point is, however, Canaan was not truly the homeland of Abraham and Sarah and their children, or of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia. A long, long way away was their homeland. Abraham and Sarah both were born out of the seed of Shem, and the Shemites remained in the land of Shinar. This means that Ur of the Chaldees was actually Abraham's homeland. But the writer to the Hebrews points out that this was no longer true of Abraham, Sarah, and their children. Verse 15 teaches us that if truly Abraham and Sarah were thinking about or desirous of the land from whence they came out, that is, Ur, they had every opportunity to return, but they did not. Canaan became their new homeland. They, as it were, disowned their old homeland in order to make Canaan the place where they longed to be. This was the land of promise to them, after all. This was where God established his covenant of friendship with him. This, therefore, was the place of their desires. And yet, and yet, not entirely. To these men and their faithful wives, even Canaan was not truly the place of their desires. They viewed this earthly land only as a picture that pointed them to the true homeland, a better homeland, a heavenly homeland. Even while living in Canaan, these saints confessed they were pilgrims and strangers there. In other words, these men and women of faith saw heaven as their homeland, their country. And the same is true with God's people today. This is the point of the writer of these verses to draw you and me into desiring our true homeland in heaven too. Think of it. We can well understand why Abraham and Sarah made Canaan their homeland instead of Ur of the Chaldeans. This was the land of promise to them. We are able to understand this in a small way. We said it earlier. Most of us have been transplanted here in the United States long ago. 
Our fathers saw this as the land of opportunity. They were excited about making this their new homeland. Well, the same was true of Abraham and his children, but from a highly spiritual point of view. Now think of heaven. It is the true place of our lineage as believers, as it was of the saints of old. When we were born again, that term teaches us we were born from above. Heaven has become the place of our common origin, therefore. No matter when or where we are born in this present world, all of us together as believers are children in the family of God. And our Father is in heaven. Our Savior is in heaven with Him. Heaven, therefore, is the place of our desires, our longing. This has become true of us by means of our salvation. No matter from what land or language or race or color, we are children together in the household of God. Through the death of Christ, we have been grafted into the vine of the church. And that transforms our desires. Now, in this life, we reach out to heaven. Because that is where our family is. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reached out to heaven, too. They were assured of their place in that heavenly country. For us, too. Heaven is a better country. That is a country that is far more advantageous than our place on earth. In our heavenly homeland, there will be no more sin, no more misery, no more tears or sorrows, only peace, joy, and rest. Now that is far better, far more advantageous than any place on earth. But let's face it, we have never seen this heavenly homeland. We have never witnessed with the eyes what is ours when we reach heaven. Just as Abraham, Sarah, along with Isaac and then Jacob, never actually possessed the land of Canaan as their own, so also they nor we have yet possessed heaven. Everything they looked for and diligently searched for was never theirs in their lifetimes. These things were only promised them. Yet we read in verse 13, they were persuaded of these promises and embraced him. Why would they do that? Why would we do that? Why would we hope for something we have not seen? Well, one reason is, God has promised it. And we have come to know and love God. And we know that what God promises, He will indeed give us. We learn of Abraham in Romans 4, that he believed God was able to perform what He had promised. Of Sarah, we learned last week that she judged God faithful who had promised. The promises... God makes to believers. We need never doubt. God is the one who promises, remember. This God is the God of our salvation. He has chosen a people from eternity to be His own. And He loves them. He loves them with a great and eternal love. When He promises His people something, He will not change His mind. He is faithful who promises. Furthermore, God is able to do what He has promised. He is God who holds all things under His sovereign control, both in heaven and on earth. He not only has planned all things, but in His providence He will see to it that everything that He has planned, He will do. God is willing to give us as His children what He has promised, being our Heavenly Father, and He is able to accomplish what He has promised, being Almighty God. 
Besides this, we have evidence, too, that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never lived to see God's promises to them regarding Canaan fulfilled. But we know, don't we, that God indeed fulfilled those promises. This is the point of the writer to the Hebrews in applying their example to you and me today. The patriarchs received the promises having seen them afar off. They received those promises. So likewise can we be reassured that we too will see God's promises to us fulfilled in heaven. Because God is indeed faithful who promises. Though it is true that God is all of this, a faithful Father and an almighty God, nevertheless, God's word before us emphasizes that these saints lived and died in faith. These saints were persuaded of God's promises to them. They embraced them. That's faith. It is the substance or assurance of things only hoped for. It is the evidence, the conviction that things not seen with the eye will indeed of a surety take place. Again, we may not forget that faith begins with the work of God's grace in the hearts of his elect people, those chosen in Christ. At the appointed time in our lives, Christ sends forth his Spirit to dwell in us, and that Spirit immediately works in us the salvation earned for us by Christ on the cross. That salvation begins with the work of regeneration, our spiritual rebirth. At that time, we who were dead up to this point received the life of Christ in us, With that work of the Spirit, we are also grafted into Jesus Christ and become one with Him. That becomes the power unto believing. Without this grafting into Christ, we would have no ability to see and know the things of the kingdom of heaven, or even desire them. But with it, the child of God comes to know God, know His sin, and know Jesus Christ and His salvation. As a result, by faith, we cling also to the promises God gives us. Cling is a good word. Our text uses the word embraced. These Old Testament believers embraced to themselves the promises of God. Not, mind you, the promise merely of an earthly country, but that of a heavenly. But faith is not simply a work of God by which we are grafted into Christ. Faith is an activity. It is knowledge. It is confidence. It is conviction, persuasion, By such faith, when the believer receives the promises of salvation in Christ and a place in heaven, he embraces these promises to himself. We know what it means to embrace someone, don't we? That is to take someone into our arms and give them a big long hug. The term embrace literally means to draw to oneself. That's the reaction of the believer to God's promises. He, he, joyfully draws them to himself and clings to them. He holds them. They are precious to him, and he embraces them so as not to let them slip away. Such is the character of faith. Now, there is something we may not overlook here. The patriarchs received only a small taste of what was promised them. They truly did see these promises afar off, that is, at a long distance, They yet lived in the day of types and shadows. Christ would not be born for many, many years yet. And yet these saints embraced the promise of his coming. They embraced what that coming entailed, that is, salvation from sin. They embraced the glorious country that awaited them in heaven for the sake of that Redeemer who was yet to come. 
How much greater reason we today have to persevere in our faith without growing weary. Christ tells us the kingdom of God is at hand. We live in the last days. We have given a more sure word of knowledge, the knowledge of our salvation. We know exactly how God is saved in Christ. We know of the person and the work of our Savior. The saints in Abraham's day did not know that, yet yet they clung to God's promises to them. How much more ought we to cling to those promises? We today in faith must embrace, cling to, most fervently and confidently, the promises God has given us. These patriarchs all died in faith, confessing they were pilgrims and strangers on the earth. Not only did they confess, but they lived as pilgrims and strangers in this world. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never owned one parcel of land in Canaan. They never settled in one place to build for themselves a city where their children and their generations could live and grow up. They lived in tents, and they wandered from one place to the next in the land. This was true because they looked for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God, that city once again being heaven. Our text refers to it in verse 16, last phrase, For God hath prepared for them a city. Heaven is spoken of as a city now, not just as a country, but as a city. Because, well, a city is a believer's permanent abode. A city that is eternal in the heavens where we will dwell with the family of God forever. The patriarchs confessed out of faith that they were pilgrims. And a pilgrim is one who simply journeys through foreign lands to visit a holy shrine or city. The patriarchs confessed and lived as those who were journeying through this present life with one goal in mind, to reach the holy city. They were always looking for that city that was to come in the heavens. Likewise, they were strangers. They simply sojourned in Canaan without attaching themselves to the inhabitants of this land. They remained strangers to the pagan inhabitants of the land of Canaan. The confession these saints made was one that they lived in their everyday lives. They did not cast in their lot with the wicked inhabitants of Canaan. They remained a spiritually distinct people. Now, this does not mean that they did not interact with others among whom they sojourned. God, after all, does place believers in this world. We certainly must deal with unbelievers in our stay here. But we do not cast our lot in with them. God's people remain a spiritually, spiritually distinct people. The application of this word of God to our lives in this world is clear. Yes, we live in houses. We live oftentimes near or in a city. But we also understand that this world is not truly our home. We have no abiding place here. We are passing through on a journey in a foreign land. And our home is in heaven. That is what we confess. But that is also how we must live. We must not place our affections on the things of this present world because they will perish. There's nothing lasting about them. Likewise, though we are called to live among the unbelievers of this world, we must separate ourselves from their godless lifestyle, their ungodly goals, their sins, and set our sights on the pleasures and treasures that exist at God's right hand. Heaven is our home. God was not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives. 
What is said here of the patriarchs must also be said of us as we live in this world. God is not ashamed to be called our God. What about that? When we live as do the wicked of this world for the here and now, then God is ashamed to attach his name to ours. The patriarchs confessed and lived as pilgrims and strangers in this world, and for that reason, God was not ashamed to be called their God. These men lived in faith in the promises of God. That faith revealed itself in the way they lived in this world. For that reason, God was glad to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is what must be said of you and me today, who also profess to be believers. God must say of us, I am not ashamed of them. I am not embarrassed to call them by my name and to attach my name to their names. Are we living in the same faith as our Old Testament fathers and mothers? Do we embrace the promises as fervently as they did? Do we desire a better country that is a heavenly? For that reason, do we live as pilgrims and strangers in the earth with no abiding place here? Then God is not ashamed to be called our God. We realize there is no reason to boast in this. Our boast is in God alone and in the work Jesus Christ has performed in us. But by His grace alone, God now attaches His name to ours. With that incentive, we go forth in faith, longing for the better country that is a heavenly. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, into thy presence we come, and give unto thee praise and thanksgiving that thou hast given us a heavenly city in which we dwell. Father, be with us in this world that we might live as pilgrims and strangers here below. Where we fail, forgive us. Give unto us the incentive of that promise of heavenly glory that is placed before us. And may we as thy children seek that country in all of our lives. Bless us in thy grace, therefore, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.